Exodus 15. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to read this, but a lot of biblical scholars believe that this is the first song in Scripture, or that it is the first song in Scripture. Here's the context of it before we go and dive and read it. The context is the preceding chapter, Exodus 14, you have Moses and the Israelites had just escaped Pharaoh's grip by a miraculous event where the Red Sea is parted by God. And they go through this area. And just as uh, Pharaoh has it, you know, he's stubborn. He goes in there with his chariots and, and with his army and with his men. And then they are engulfed by the waters. So now we come to the point of Exodus 15 where Moses and Miriam have written a song of gratitude, a song of thanksgiving, a song of praise, a song of proclamation of how God is good all the time. Let's start actually towards the end, where Miriam comes into the picture. Exodus 15 verse 20 says, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, which then makes... Miriam, Moses' sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them. Okay, this is the chorus of this entire song. Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has thrown or hurled into the sea. The song that we're about to look at from verse 1 all the way to 18 you can summarize it in those four sentences. Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted, the horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. Of course, that is speaking specifically to Pharaoh and to his army that uh, they have been hurled and swallowed by the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea. That's the chorus. Many theologians believe... Uh, this song has three stanzas, that it has three stanzas. And after each stanza, Miriam, they believe that Miriam and the women with their tambourines would dance after each stanza. And they would sing this phrase, Sing to the Lord, for, his, for He is highly exalted, the horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. So three stanzas, uh, verse 1 through 5 is the first stanza. Verse 6 through 10 is considered to be the second stanza. And then verses 11 through 18, which is the longest one, is the third and last stanza. Let's go into the first stanza first. In verse 1 through 5, it says, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army He has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. 
The first stanza is uh, highly considered as a summary of the entire song, a summary of, of what's to come in the song. But the, there's so many verses here in this entire passage, in the entire chapter of 15, that we won't have time to go verse by verse. So I would like us to look at some key words and some key verses that I think are very pertinent to us this morning. Okay, One of those sentences is the very first sentence of the song. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. To whom? To the Lord. I think this is very important for us, that we need to often think of why do we worship? Why do we praise? Why do we play our instruments? Why do we come to church? It's because it's about God. We come to church for the Lord. Not because of any other reason, but because we desire to, to be with God, and at the same time we want to know what can we do for God and for the community that He has entrusted us with. Charles Spurgeon said that there should be no other reason that we sing but for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, the 1900s, uh, the pastor in, in the mid-1900s. I will sing to the Lord. And why? We have to ask that question, why? It's in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song because He has become my salvation. When, the, when salvation became real for the Jewish people, for the people here at this time, that's when they sang this song. What do I mean by that? I think we really need to take some time with this and reflect on what that means, that God has become my salvation. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the, uh, of the Israelites of that time. Put yourselves in their shoes. Uh, the context of their story is up to 400 years they were enslaved by Egypt. We get that time frame in the book of Genesis. That they were enslaved for 400 years. That means then the people who were rescued from Egypt by Moses know nothing else. All their life, whether you're 5 years old, or 55 years old, or 95 years old, all you've known for your life is slavery. That's everyone in this room. That's all we would know then if we were in their situation. Then out of nowhere comes this man who's doing all these crazy things, turning a staff uh, into a snake and back to a staff, right? This man who's turning water into blood. Uh, the Nile River, turning it into blood. You're all wondering, oh, maybe he is a prophet of God. Then you start to follow him. And you walk out into the wilderness. You escape Pharaoh's grip. You get out of the city gates. You're walking in the wilderness. You're escaping. You're trying to escape. And then you look behind you and what do you see? A dust cloud. Because there's chariots chasing you. Pharaoh is right behind you, at your heels. You're running, you're frightened, you're scared. Then all of a sudden, all you see in front of you is a massive amount of water, the Red Sea. And you're thinking to yourself, that's it. We're dead. We're caught. There's nowhere to go. Mountains on this side, 
too rocky to walk on that side, no pathway there. If you've seen the 1950s Ten Commandments with Charles Heston, you see Charles Heston playing Moses, striking the ground, right? And then the water splits. Then they walk through. I don't know what that sight must have been like. You're going to have to use your imagination. You're going to have to use your thoughts. I want you to think about the grandest thing you've ever seen in life. Maybe the Grand Canyon, maybe the Niagara Falls, something so grand that you've seen in life, multiply that to a hundred times. Because in my lifetime, I've never seen a massive body of water split in half. A one-time event. Because a one-time event that had to happen because God's people had to escape. And God allowed it to happen. This is what I mean, that their salvation became real to them. Sometimes I think we struggle as Christians because salvation just becomes one of those other theological words. How real is your salvation to you? How real is the struggle to you? The struggle of sin, the struggle of the life that we are in. Sometimes we might actually say, but I'm not in a struggle right? I'm blessed. I live in the greatest country in the world. I have riches. If you're middle class here, you're on the top percent of wealth in the entire world. It would be very easy for us to not feel like we're struggling. It would be easy for us to not feel enclosed like the Israelites did. Here's the army and here's the Red Sea. Where do we go next? But their salvation became real. And that's what that phrase means right there. They said, I will sing to the Lord because now I have realized how God saves, how God provides. I will sing to the Lord because He has become my salvation. That's the first stanza. That's the first stanza in this song. An, an acknowledgement of God's saving grace for His people. Then we go into the second stanza. Let's read that together. It says in verse 6, we'll go all the way through 10, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the, uh, in the heart of the sea. But the enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This second stanza, verses 6 through 10, there is a clear comparison between God's might and human's ability, or the thought 
that we have this ability. Verse 9 points that out. I love how they wrote this song, Moses and Miriam, the comparison between the you's and the eyes, right? I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, I will gorge, I will draw my sword. Can we be guilty sometimes by using that very language ourselves? I will do this. Maybe not to the extent of Pharaoh, but to the extent of, I will make plans. And it's good to make plans. God wants us to make plans. God wants us to have a trajectory to, to succeed. He does. But those plans become dangerous when we are so committed to those plans that we're willing to give up certain things or compromise certain things. And now it's not about God's plans. Now it becomes your plan. I will. The beauty of this song is that Moses and Miriam, when they wrote this, especially on this part of the stanza, do you hear anything where they said, we led the people, God, and the people followed. No, they're making this song about God. Look at all the yous. Your right hand, O Lord, okay, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. I counted 10 times that the word you is mentioned in reference to God, that it was God's might, it was God's hand that rescued us from Egypt. Nothing that we did, but because of what God did, He provided. And here's the beauty of it. Not only does it speak of God's ability, you know, actions, hand, that uh, when you think of a battle, what do you think of? You think of um, a warrior using his arm strength, right? A really good warrior knows how to wield a sword uh, with both hands, okay? But God's strength, catch this, goes beyond human actions because all he needs to do is with the blast of his nostrils, you know, I love that illustration. And then verse 10, it says, You blew with your breath. Where do you see that elsewhere? In the, in the book of Genesis, right? Creation week. Yes, you're right, Dad. In creation, God breathed into that lifeless body and became Adam and Eve. Very uh, same way here. Very uh, same method. But this time... As God is breathing, it's not to just put life, but to save life. To save the life of the Israelites from the Egyptians. So, so this tells me then that God, His might is beyond our might. Not just by actions of hands and feet and movements like we do as humans, but He fights the way God fights. And then the other thing I wanted to point out here in this stanza is that nature listens to him. And why not? He created nature. If you ever wonder why did the waters split for God? <laughs> because God has the ability to split the waters. Because God created the waters. If he wanted to split the mountains, I, I have no doubt, he probably could have used the mountains as well to save the Israelites. 
to drop rocks on the Egyptians. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, he used water. Think in Scripture. Think throughout Scripture. Uh, ponder on Scripture for a while. Where does nature step in? Or where does God use nature to save His people? Jonah and the big fish, right? Yeah. And then, uh, not just nature, but physics as well. How, how does Jesus turn five loaves of bread to feed 5,000? Was it five? Am I remembering it correctly? Thank you. And two fish. How does he do that? He tells Peter, cast your net on the other side. And then his net becomes full of fish because nature listens to God. It would be right for us as his own people. The peak of his creation, it would be right for us to listen to him as much as nature does. Do you see the gratitude in this song? Do you see the gratitude and the, the recognition of God's power and the, the humility of the people of Israel to even sing this song? So let's go into the third stanza. The third stanza reads this. It's the longest one. Some scholars believe that you can split this stanza. Into, they think there's, some think that there's two stanzas in this, that there's a total of four in the entire song. I have come to believe that I think there are three, because if you look at verse 11 and verse 18, they're like bookends. They're bookends, okay? And everything in between helps support verse 11 and verse 18. Here's how it starts, and it's very important that you remember how it starts. The third stanza starts like this. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them all. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them, uh, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. And verse 18 closes the stanza with, The Lord will reign forever and ever. I do believe this is one whole entire stanza because of just that fact that the book ends, the way it starts with verse 11 and how verse 18 ends. This third stanza points out, it points out that God is a unique God. That God is truly above all other gods. For who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Now, how do I know this? 
Well, we've got to look at verse 13. I think there's some really key hints here that speak to God's character that's unlike that you don't find in other gods. Number one, because all other gods are figments of imagination, right? But this God that we serve, Elohim, the God of love, is that. He shows attributes and traits that can be felt and touched and that we can see and smell. I'm not just talking about our time period. I'm talking about 2,000 years ago too, when Jesus walked this earth, right? When the disciples and the Pharisees, the good guys and the bad guys, the blind, the lame, the sick, the adulterers, they all saw Jesus. There's no other God in our history of humanity that has ever done that. No other God. So let's look at verse 13. The first character of God is that it says here, In your unfailing love. God is love. At the core of who God is, that's what He is. Love. You've heard that countless time in, ver in 1 John, that God is love, right? Jesus came into this world to show us who God is through His ministry, through His actions, through His compassion and healing. It exudes love. No other gods have that ability. You think about all the false gods. The ones that come to mind right now are, since we're talking about Egypt, you have Ra and Iris. Uh, Ra. Uh, the sun god, I believe, of Egypt. Has he ever come into some type of form where he showed that love and compassion? Advance a few thousand years, hundred years, you come to Rome and Greek civilization. Did Hera and Zeus ever show that kind of love? Or the gods of Canaan, uh, which are Baal and Dagon? No! Those gods can't love because those gods are not real. But God loves. He loves you. He loves me. And the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. God loves. Then if you go to the next key word that's important here, In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. Those other gods I just mentioned, if you read those fables and myths and the legends about those gods, you don't ever hear them redeeming their people, not like God does. Our God redeems. That's the whole story of the great controversy. That's the whole story of salvation. What did He do for the people of Israel in this context, in this story? He redeemed them, He saved them, He delivered them from the might of Egypt. And what's the whole story of the Bible? To redeem us, to save us, to bring us home to our everlasting home in heaven. That's the story of Scripture. He wants to redeem us. Another word that's synonymous to redeem, reconcile. He wants to reconcile us because of sin. We have been separated from Him. And what does He want to do? He wants to save us, not just to save us, but truly to reconcile us to Him. Oh man, this is a powerful song. The song written by Moses and Miriam. 
And then the next word here, in your strength, you will guide. Is there a different word that your Bible uses? In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. My Bible says guide. To guide. Why is that important? Well, let me give you an illustration here. Pretend I'm working in the hospital and we have a guest who has just walked into the hospital. Have you ever been into a place, maybe a mall, a hospital, and you're, you just, you're just lost? And you're like this, right? Looking up, looking for a sign, right? Let's pretend I'm walking, passing by a guest in the hospital, and I notice a man looking lost. I have two options. I actually have three. First option, I can just ignore him and let him be lost. Option number two, I can give him directions. I can say, oh, you're looking for the ICU. Well, you want to go down this hallway. Now, when you get to that second hallway, not the first hallway, not the third hallway, but the second hallway, you're going to take a left. As you go down that long corridor, you're gonna, uh, you need to look for this button and buzz in. Then they're going to open the doors for you. Then you're going to walk in through those double doors. Then you're going to take a right. Don't miss that first right. And you have to take right. If you go left, you're going to go to the COVID unit. So you want to go right. Once you go right, you're going to follow that hallway. It's going to curve. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? Right? That's the directions. Have you ever received directions before? If you're like me, you're not really listening to the directions that are, be or that are given to you. You're like, what? Huh? Or my third option is, I guide him. I say, sir, come along with me. And as a, an associate of Centura, that's actually what we have to do as, empo as employees. We are told that we have to guide, we have to walk our guests to their destination, regardless of where we're going. Okay? We're going to guide them. So I can now guide him. Uh, I could possibly be in front of him or side by side with him. Okay? And the other blessing in all of this, this is why I love guiding people to their destination, is working as a chaplain, it also gives me an opportunity to get to know them. One of the questions I love to ask guests is, do you have a family member here in the hospital that you're visiting? Oh, yes. They always follow that up with, my mom is here, who's sick, or my best friend. And then we talk some more. And all the while, I'm walking them to their destination. Guess what God does for us? He doesn't leave us like the first option. He doesn't tell us, oh, you want to get to heaven? Well, go that way. The third option is what He always does. He walks alongside us. Sometimes he leads us. And other times, like the parable of the footprints in the sand, sometimes you only see one trail. Why? Because he's carrying us on his shoulders. He's guiding us. Guidance is very, it's a power of presence. There's no other gods out there that does that. Let's ask Hercules how he did. No, he can't say Zeus walked alongside him. But let's ask Peter. Let's ask Paul. Let's, let's ask Mary. What are they going to all testify? Jesus was with me. And Jesus might not be here today, physically. But how do we know God is still with us? Through the Holy Spirit He has sent to us. We see that in the book of Acts. I shall give you a great comforter. That's also mentioned in John. Right? 
God's presence is with us. He guides us. He's still working with us so that we may one day be with Him in His holy dwelling place. Brothers and sisters, who among the gods is like the God that we serve? No one. Because the God that we serve is the one true and only God of all gods. Then verse 14 speaks to the greatness of God even more, right? Verse 14 now, it's not about his own people speaking about who God is. Now it's other nations. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Tr terror and dread will fall upon them. They're going to hear about this miraculous event that God did in splitting the Red Sea. They're going to notice. They're gonna, and that's why I believe God performed that miracle. It wasn't only to save His people, but it was for other people, especially non-believers, to believe. Did you catch this? The areas that are mentioned here are Philistia, Edom, uh, Moab, and Canaan. Those are all the surrounding lands or the surrounding nations um, that, are, uh, that will cover Jerusalem, right? Uh, once they establish themselves into the promised land. Uh, you have Edom on the south. If this is the Red, or not the Red Sea, the Dead Sea. And then this is Jerusalem around here. You have Edom on the south. This is where I should put a picture up. And then you have Moab somewhat on the west and the south part. Okay? Then you have Canaan on the north and east, and then Philistia is right here next to, uh, next to the Mediterranean Sea. So we're talking about how all the neighbors of the Israelites are going to hear about this God who is awesome and great, that the sea even responds to Him, that the nature even responds to Him. We find this in Joshua. Uh, keep your fingers in Exodus. In Joshua chapter 2. Verse 10. Let's take a read here. Joshua 2, verse 10. You've seen this before. The context here is now, um, at this point, Moses is dead, and Joshua has become the new leader, and Joshua sends two spies into Jericho, right? To see for a weakness, to scout the city of Jericho. They meet a uh, lady by the name of Rahab. And in verse 10, Rahab says this, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What was written first? This song was written first. This song prophesied that nations will hear about this miracle. And then a few years later, what happens? Rahab speaks. She holds testament of this news. We have heard how this God has helped you cross on dry land. I want to follow that God. I'm a believer of this God. And what happens to Rahab and her household? They're saved. They're saved. Then the 
last verses of this stanza, verse 16 and 17, it closes in a beautiful picture of God bringing His people into the promised land, right? In verse 17 it says, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. Reconciliation with God. Now, the context here is that the people are going to their promised land. The Israelites are going to Canaan, their promised land. That's going to be their home. But of course, in our context, our promised land is heaven. Exactly. It's heaven. So this song is very relevant for us today. This song should be sang in our churches. This song should be the core of who we are as Christians today. If you think about it, this experience that the Israelites had with the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh dying in that sea and, and them writing this song, this here is the core and foundation of Jewish belief. Even to this day. You've heard me say this in other sermons in the past, but Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema that the Israelites live by. They do that even to this day. So, where am I going with all this? Next week, Thanksgiving. I want you to find inspiration from this story. And I want you to write your own Thanksgiving song. That's what Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel did. They wrote their Thanksgiving song. What's your Thanksgiving song? If you're to reflect back in this past year, or maybe in the last five years, or maybe sometime uh, else in your life, uh, I would suggest look at the time, the biggest time that you felt God's presence or deliverance or, or how He provided for you. What's your Thanksgiving song that you can write on behalf of God? I truly believe that's the meaning of Thanksgiving. It goes beyond turkeys and mac and cheese and I guess I should have said ve veggie turkey. Uh, it goes beyond all of that. True thanksgiving is to acknowledge God's blessings that He has bestowed upon you and me, and we praise Him for that.